everybody be cool. You be cool. First rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Is this a dream? Unfortunately, no one told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. I thought not. The word they'd be wrong. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to the BBFC podcast. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, uh, the original 1974 one. And I'm joined by Senior Examiner Craig Lapper once more. How are you doing, Craig? Hi, good, thanks. This is a request we've received via email from Barry Dodds. He's emailed us to say, With the tragic passing of Gunnar Hansen, I thought it might be a nice tribute to him for the BBFC to talk about the troubled past of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and its eventual uncut release by the BBFC. I would love to hear the board talk about the censorship history of this movie. Now, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of Gunnar Hansen's first films. Uh, he played Leatherface, who was in part inspired by real-life serial killer Ed Gein, who um, wears the mask made of human skin, uh, hence his name, and engages in murder and cannibalism uh, alongside his inbred family. Now, Craig, we were speaking about this a few weeks ago in preparation for this, and I suddenly realised it turned out I don't know anything about the history of this. I know it's controversial, but I don't know much more than that. So what did the board make of the film when it first came in? Yeah, well, it's um, it's a film that's always been associated with James Furman because he had such a long history of refusing to classify the film. But it actually first came in under his predecessor, Stephen Murphy, in uh, early 1975. And it was Stephen Murphy who refused to classify the film. Murphy had seen the film informally before it came in for formal classification and he told the distributor that he didn't think it would be likely that the board would be able to pass the film. Of course, one of the things the board had to consider, especially then, was whether the film would be acceptable to local licensing authorities. And and his fear was that a, a majority of local authorities wouldn't be happy with the film being shown in their area. So he told the company he, he didn't feel it would be classifiable. Nonetheless, they made a few small reductions of their own and submitted the film to see what happened. Unsurprisingly, the examiners agreed with Stephen Murphy and didn't feel that the film could be classified at the X category. Perhaps the most surprising thing is that the board's examiners, and Murphy agreed, felt that it was a film of considerable merit rather than you know a cheap exploitation film, as it would be regarded by some people. So the board had a surprisingly high opinion of the film, and that was part of the problem, because it was so well made technically, it was very difficult to make cuts that would do anything to alter the overall oppressive atmosphere of terrorisation and violence because it's a film that for anyone who's seen it will know in spite of the great title which is one of the classic exploitation cinema titles it shows almost no blood and no gore at all it's it's a very visually discreet film but it because it's so carefully put together it creates this really heavy an oppressive atmosphere of terrorisation and it's very hard to do anything with that by, you know, making one or two cuts. I'm sure that's something that really struck me when I saw yeah. it. I mean, I saw it years later, you know, mm. and it did strike me that I was expecting a full-on mm. gore fest, mm. and that's not what's sort of no. by the film. No, and it's very clever the way certain scenes like the scene where uh, one of the women is picked up by Leatherface taken into the kitchen, and it creates a real sense of dread and makes you think you've seen far more than you have, probably because... Uh, you're so scared about what you're going to see, you turn away and don't realise that, in fact, you didn't see anything. That's interesting. So, I mean, obviously, local authorities do have the power to override BBFC classification decisions if they so wish, and they've sort of famously done that with films like Life of Brian in the past. So 
did anything like that happen with Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah, um, after the board had said no, and after the board's new director, James Furman, had uh, joined in 1975 and also said no to the film, you know, it was, it was natural for the distributor to see if the new, the new man in charge was going to take a different view, but he didn't. The board suggested, as, as it often did at the time, that you could try your chances with local authorities. And so throughout the whole period from 1976 right through to 1980, film was shown to one local authority after another, um, usually in larger urban areas where there would be a lot of cinemas that would be interested in showing it. The first authority to see it was the GLC, and at the time they did issue certificates that would allow a film to be shown across the whole of London, which is you know, obviously a, a big deal for the distributor. And in fact, the GLC did pass the film uncut with an X certificate, which meant that it was shown quite widely around London. Over the next few years, it was shown, uh, it was given a classification for showing in Bath. It was given a classification in Birmingham, again, another really big centre with a lot of cinemas. It was classified for showing in Leeds. And it was classified for showing in Cardiff, subject to one cut. But I'm afraid our records don't uh, don't show what cut was made to make it suitable for showing in Cardiff. Also, throughout that time, the board uh, kept being asked again and again, you know, the film's played in London, the film's played in Birmingham, the film's played here. Will you have another look? Will you have another look? And several times during the late 70s, early 80s, Furman had another look at the film, another look at the film, and attempted making cuts to the film, but again, he just met with that that problem that uh, if you got a minute out, two minutes out, three minutes out, it doesn't really affect the atmosphere of the film. Sure, sure. I mean, I notice um, we've got some notes in front of us, and I notice uh, um, James Furman has quite a interesting quote here, which he did, where he described the film as the pornography of terror, yeah. which is quite a sort of a interesting quote, and obviously we're yeah. sort of familiar with the term torture porn these days. Yeah, yeah, I wonder yeah. if that had something to do with where that title came from. Yeah, I think, I think his reservation... And this, in fact, wasn't just his reservation, it was a reservation the examiner shared and, and which Murphy had suggested, was that particularly in the second half of the film, where it's all about one woman constantly being chased, 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 um, that, that, what, that what they were worried about was that the film was offering to some viewers just the spectacle of the terrorisation of one woman, and that was what the audience were meant to be enjoying. Whereas I think as time's gone on, it's perhaps become clear that there are more traditional horror tropes working behind that and also um, elements of black humour which uh, don't seem to have been as easy to perceive for people when the film was new. Sure. I mean, you mentioned that several local authorities gave permission for the film to be shown. Some major councils like London and Birmingham did allow the film to be shown. The the majority of councils who were approached did turn it down. So Mm. I think in total, by the early 80s, about 19 councils had said no and only nine councils had said yes. So in that sense, the board was probably right Mm. that um, our certificate, which is meant to be for national release, um, wouldn't have gone down well with the majority of authorities. Sure. I mean, it's interesting to sort of see the uh, the waters tested in that way, I suppose, yeah. with a, a controversial film like that. I mean, now I mentioned that I obviously saw the film and it is available on uh, DVD and uh, previously VHS. So how did the eventual passing of the film come about? Because obviously the video recordings that came in in 1984. Yeah. And that was a climate of, you know, um, public concern about video nasties, as they were termed at the time. So. Yeah. 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre sort of seen as a classic example of the sort of thing they might be concerned about. Yeah, people often think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of the so-called video nasties. In fact, it was never a video nasty. It it was released on video in the early 80s before the Video Recordings Act uh, came into effect. It was a very popular video and very widely seen in the period from 1982 to about 1985. Um, But again, probably because it doesn't show any gore and very little detail of violence, there wasn't very much for the Director of Public Prosecutions to base an obscenity case on. It wasn't like um, Driller Killer or The Evil Dead, which are gory, or or films like Cannibal Holocaust. It's just psychological, threatening and suggestive. And I think because the film had played so widely in places like London, Birmingham, Leeds... um, it wasn't felt likely that a jury would convict the film of obscenity because you know there wasn't there wasn't anything to really hang such a charge on. So it was never on on the um, on the list of video nasties. That said, um, again, when it was submitted for video release after the Video Recordings Act, it came up against the same problem that uh, Jones was still concerned about the pervasive sense of threat and terrorisation, especially of a woman, and when considering whether it was suitable for classification for viewing in the home, those concerns, and again the difficulty of making meaningful cuts to the film, meant it just didn't get a certificate after the Video Recordings Act, until... Uh, 1999, uh, once uh, James Furman left the board and then the board under new management, so to speak, had a fresh look at it. And interestingly, in that uh, at that period, um, in 1998, the film had been re-released um, in Camden. Uh, we no longer had a GLC at that point giving London-wide certificates, but Camden Council were asked to watch the film, uh, passed it 18 uncut with the modern certificate and uh, the board was in a situation where once again we were being asked to consider the film while it was playing in several cinemas around our offices and I I think the view was taken in 99 that over the years through a variety of means it had become such a well-known film such a well-known quantity that it had basically achieved classic status within horror films by this stage and that it was relatively dated now that it had been superseded in terms of other 18 level horror films and that it was unlikely to disturb um, an adult audience 25 years after the event so finally in 1999 it was past 18 uncut interestingly we then got a few letters from members of the public who were disappointed that we'd passed the film because they felt by giving our approval to it, they'd take, we'd taken away some of the sense of the illicit that they'd always enjoyed uh, in, in watching the film previously. You've reduced so its notoriety. That's right, yes, by saying, well, that's fine, you can watch this film. Um, it had undercut some of its reputation, and part of its reputation is... Uh, because it because it's been subject to censorship for so mm. long. Okay, thanks very much, Craig. It's quite an interesting look at that film. So, like I said, it's something I wasn't particularly familiar with myself, although obviously I knew it was a uh, quite a notorious film. If you'd like to request a film for us to uh, speak about, then please do contact us on at BBFC on Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at bbfc.co.uk, or you can use the podcast feedback form on the podcast page of our website. <laughs>